In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful. And may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajjil farajahum. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And thank you for joining us once again in this series called Life, the Islamic Answer, in which we're trying to extract from the original sources of our religion and our scriptures principles that we have been calling principles we've been calling principles for living Islamically in a complex, ambiguous, confusing world. The topic that we've been trying to explore in uh, a certain level of detail is that of knowledge and aql, reason, intellect. And until now, uh, we've explored the importance of knowledge, the importance of aql, the relationship between the two. We've looked at, with a focus on the Holy Quran, we've looked at why is it so important from the point of view of Islam that we focus as Muslims on knowledge and on aql? And we gave a number of reasons. We put them in two big categories. We said the first category is in the, for the intrinsic value of knowledge and aql, for, the, for their value in themselves. And we looked at that from the point of view that a human being instinctively and intuitively can recognize the good and the truth and this is what knowledge is supposed to represent and we also said that they carry a sacredness to them and that sacredness stems from the fact that their original source both of these notions the notion of knowledge and the notion of aql their source is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he makes this very clear and then we looked at the functional role that both of these play and that's the second category so in addition to their value in themselves they allow us to perform a purpose to reach a purpose and so they play a certain function and we said when we look at a human being we can look at the human being based on our ultimate purpose and for our ultimate purpose we have to look at the afterlife we have to take our entire existence into consideration and then we see how knowledge and aql become the ultimate tools that allow us to reach our ultimate purpose so that we reach our full humanity not only through but exclusively through and everything else becomes a manifestation of our level of knowledge and our application of aql. This is the ultimate purpose of a human being. And then we said there's also a, an intermediary purpose. And this is our ability to live in this world. And we saw that our religion recognizes that there is a value and there is a merit and there is an importance to live in this world in the best way possible. To live in this world while doing good, to live in this world while, while providing for ourselves 
comfort and luxury and a good life. There is no issue with that, so long as it's part of the overall understanding that there is something that will happen after our death in this world, and that this is where ultimately our existence is going to unfold, not in this world. So long as we don't lose track of that, the priorities remain clear to us, there is no issue in applying ourselves in this world and providing for ourselves and our families and our communities and society and humanity in general. And this is where we saw that the Holy Quran also emphasizes on the specific types of knowledge that not only allow us to ultimately be closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but they allow us to control this world. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I've made it all subservient to you so that you may use it however you wish. This is why it was created this way, so that you can use it. If you study it and you understand its laws, you can use it. So there is a push, there is a call in our religion to specialize in these areas. And in addition to that, we saw that, perhaps a point not really discussed, we saw that our religion recognizes what today we call professional expertise and competence. And we saw that specifically through, through some you know, glimpses from the stories of the prophets, for instance, and how they applied specific types of knowledge to serve their communities while at the same time getting closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So all of that, inshallah, is clear. And then we, saw, we thought, okay, let's look at, before now doing a deeper dive into these two notions and starting to really look at the details, what type of knowledge and how does it manifest itself and what are the barriers to it in this world. Before we go any further, let's just look at the opposite. Because oftentimes, one of the best ways to understand something is to understand what it is not or that which stands in direct opposition to it. And so when we went back to the scriptures, when we went back to the original sources in Islam, we see that it doesn't only praise the merits of knowledge and aql, it also very clearly talks about the opposite notion of jahl. And we, we saw that, it doesn't leave it uh, completely under silence, let's say. It just says, you know, this is good, and obviously the rest is not so good. No, it is going to give a lot of detail about what it means to be a jahil. What does jahil mean? What can it lead to? What are the repercussions? What are the indications that someone may be falling into jahil? How do you get yourself out of it? We're going to see that it talks about all of these in quite an extensive amount of detail. And we've already started to see some of that, and inshallah today, we're going to continue with this idea. Simply as a very quick refresher or reminder that the notion of jahl in Islam already, as we saw, is not limited to the notion of ignorance. Sometimes we think jahl equates to ignorance, not knowing. Now it goes further than that. So the biggest point, there's a lot more we could say, but the biggest most important point so that we don't spend too much time just on the definitions is that the jahl does not only stand in opposition to knowledge so it's not knowledge or lack of knowledge it's also aql and lack of aql lack of intellect lack of reason lack of good judgment lack of wisdom so one way I often refer to jahl in this notion I simply call it foolishness 
So the notion of jahl includes both of these. Sometimes you'll see the verses of the Quran, you'll see the narrations. When they refer to jahl, the notion, if we want to translate it, it's more accurate to say it's talking about ignorance. And at other times, it's really talking about foolishness and lack of aql, lack of judgment, you know, not behaving, not applying aql properly. So inshallah, we cover as much as we can today. Um, given that a couple of days ago, we also went through the auspicious occasion of Eid al-Ghidir, I thought that we'd spend a little bit of time on that at the end. So inshallah, I'll wrap it up so that we leave enough time for that as well as a little bit of a Q&A and a discussion as usual. The last hadith, so that we don't spend too much time on a recap, the last hadith, inshallah, it refreshes your mind on everything we covered. The last hadith we covered was that of Imam Ali alayhi salam in which he says, Al-jahilu man al-matalib. The jahil, the person who is ignorant, is the person who is tricked who is fooled, who is duped by the affairs of the world. So we're not going to repeat our commentary on that. Inshallah, this brings back a little bit of what we were discussing. So let's move to the next ahadith. We have two ahadith that have very similar terminology, but the, the relationship or the notions are flipped. So in the first one, it says, Al-alim man arafa qadrah. Al-jahil man amrah. Al-alim, the one who has knowledge, is the person who knows their value. That I understand what my own value is. Al-jahil man amrah. Al-jahil, by opposition, is the person who is at a loss, who is not aware of their own affairs. The next hadith. It says, Al-Aqil man ahraza amrah. So Al-Aqil is the person who is in control, is managing very well all of his affairs. And Al-Jahil man jahila qadrah. Al-Jahil, the ignorant, is the one who does not know what their value is. There's one way to look at this, and inshallah I'm not going to have to repeat this, so I'm going to say it now once. Please keep it in mind as we go through. In fact, the whole series is supposed to, is meant for this duality to be kept in mind. But as we go through the ahadith, look at the ahadith, the verses of the Quran, in this series specifically, but in life in general, and when you think about anything that has to do with our religion. Try to look at it once from the point of view, from the angle of what can it serve, how can this help us in our daily lives? Forget that there is a life after this life. Focus on this life only. Is there anything that we can extract from this as a lesson, as a teaching, as a piece of wisdom that I can use? That's one. And then two, how can this help in the grand scheme of things, in both worlds taken together, life and afterlife? And this usually opens a whole lot of doors to going deeper in our understanding, in our interpretation of what we're looking at. Here the hadith is saying, Al-Aqil is the person who understands what their own value is. 
So if I look at it from the angle of this world, today I think this is a very popular notion. We're often reminded, you have to know your worth. You have to know your value. So it would be a mistake to fall on one extreme or the other. If I overestimate my value, if I think too highly of myself, that is a problem. And it can cause all sorts of problems. And the opposite. If I think too, I give too low of a value to myself, that causes a whole list and a whole plethora of problems too. This is where you see the problems of lack of self-esteem and lack of confidence because you don't understand your worth. You don't think you're worth anything more than something, whatever that may be. And so this can be something that manifests itself in any dimension in life. Right? So one way to look at this is to say Islam is really emphasizing. Imam Ali is really telling us as you go through your life here, understand what your worth and what your value is in this world. So that you don't overestimate what you can do, what you are, who you are, because that's a problem. One of the biggest problems with this is that you stop seeing your mistakes. And so you stop growing. You stop recognizing and identifying where the issues are. You think you're too good for that. It, it leads to pride. It leads to arrogance. You're overconfident. So that can cause problems. And then on the other side, and this is different from being humble or modest, it's that you actually believe that you're not worth. So this, of course, is going to mean that you're always going to approach things with a lack of confidence. You need a boost of confidence. You need a boost of morale and esteem constantly. You're go going to live your life with hesitation in everything. And this shows in everything that we do. So there is a way to look at this hadith and say, this is the focus here. That Islam actually wants us to be confident, but not in an exaggerated way that may lead to arrogance and pride. It doesn't want people who are lacking self-esteem and lacking confidence. Be confident in who you are. Be strong. Know who you are. Understand your value. And this fits very squarely and very nicely with everything happening in today's society. Because a lot of it had to do with, especially previous generations, things that led to a lack of esteem and a lack of confidence. And so this was in reaction to it. Today, you're constantly pushed, constantly reminded to assert yourself, to be confident, to be comfortable in your own skin, and so on and so forth. That's great. Now let's go a step beyond that and look at the overall picture. This is where you can change lenses. And this is where you see, maybe Imam Ali says, understand your worth, because this is this life that you see, this world that you see, is not all that there is. There is more. So on the one side, you're this insignificant little creature created by an absolute and infinitely powerful and knowledgeable and merciful creator. You have to understand your worth in that chain of existence. 
which is basically nothing, unless you recognize this relationship of being created. You're a creature and you have a creator. So there's a whole sequence of consequences to that. And also understand your worth that you are meant for an eternal existence. You are meant to live eternally in an afterlife that is meant to be all about happiness and bliss and joy. This is the purpose, the true purpose of your creation. If you're willing to sacrifice that, then you don't understand your worth. You're wasting your worth, you're wasting your value for something less in exchange to the potential that you've been given. And that's why we have so many ahadith. Uh, a number of our ahadith are explicit in this. They say, we have a number of our imams that say, the price of your soul is Jannah. Do not sell it for anything less. The soul that you have, the price, its value, is paradise. It's eternity in paradise. If you're giving it away, make sure that you're giving it away for something that is worth this price. Anything less, you're losing. You're not in a good bargaining situation. We have a number of ahadith that say that. So it comes down to, when you look at this, this hadith can be looked at, looking at this world, my value in this world, how I live my daily life, and it could also mean my value in the grand scheme of things. What am I really worth? What does it mean when the Imam says, know your worth? Al-alim or al-aqil is the person who understands their true worth. And al-jahil is the person who's completely lost in their affairs because they go together. If you don't know your worth, you don't know how to act. And we're going to see that as a theme, come back again and again around jahil. That you don't know how to behave because you don't know the value of things. You're constantly lost. You put too much where you should put less, and you put too little where you should put more. In another hadith, in another hadith we have Al-Aqil Ya'atamidu ala amalih. An amazing hadith. Al-Aqil Ya'atamidu ala amalih. Al-Jahil Ya'atamidu ala amalih. Al-Aqil is the person who relies on their actions. Al-Jahil is the person who relies on their hopes. You have dreams, you have ambitions, you have aspirations, you have hopes. Great. Are you going to rely on these images in your mind and hope that they just happen on their own? Or are you going to rely on your work to get there? Nothing is going to happen on its own. And once again, we could do the same operation and apply it to this world. You want a degree, you want a business, you want to be fit, you want to get married, you want to have a family, you have to want whatever it may be. Are you putting in the work or are you expecting that it just happens on its own? It's going to land in your lap because you're hoping for it and you're thinking about it. What are you doing? Where is the action? The Imam says if you are aqil, this needs to show. You can't just say, I have a dream, I have a hope, I have an aspiration. Al-Aqil is the one who relies on their action. It doesn't say they don't have hopes. 
It doesn't say not to have dreams and aspirations. It says when you rely, what you rely on is the action, not the hope. The hope is not going to get you anywhere. It's a good general attitude, but you need to rely on action. And then, of course, if you want to look at the other side of it, if you look at the afterlife here, same thing. If you're going to rely on things in this world, are they true? Are they real? Or are they false hopes? Okay? So amal here could be, you know, righteous actions and piety and faith leading to a better afterlife. And it could also be living your life, your daily life, your practical day-in, day-out life with this motto that I'm not going to just rely on dreams, empty dreams. I'm going to actually put in the work for it. The next hadith, Al-Alim yanzuru biqalbihi wa khatirih. Al-Jahil yanzuru bi'aynihi the person who has ilm, who has knowledge, when they look at anything in this world, it's an event, it's a thing, it's a person, they look at it with the heart and the mind. Al-Jahil is the person who looks at things with the sight of their eyes. This is a theme that has come back a few times. And you see every time it's being pushed a little bit further, this theme of not being tricked, not being duped by looking at things superficially. We have to, as a second nature, something we don't even think about, by default, when you look at things, you look at things deeply. Which means you can't just look at them with your eyes. It's not the superficial appearance it's not the first story and the first version of the story that you get that you just accept. You look at it with the eyes of the heart, or the eyes of the mind, al-khatr or al-qalb. And on the other side, the person is only looking at it from a superficial lens. Whatever is happening, whatever everyone is seeing, that's what I accept. And once again, this is something that we can apply to anything and everything. We said this is a theme when we talked about Apple and we're going to see throughout the series. The importance that if you want to be someone who is aware as a Muslim, someone who really lives the spirit of Islam, critical thought has to be part of you. You have to be an embodiment of critical thought. If something comes to you ready-made from culture, from family, from society, from history, from science, critical mind. This is what Islam was sent to do. This is part of the revolution. There's a whole lot of that came to people and people accepted because this is the way things were. And a lot of this can pass as science, as culture, as the official version of anything. And we're not saying we reject or we accept. We're saying there has to be a layer of critical thinking. And if you're even better, if you're advanced, many layers of critical thinking. Each one of them focusing on perhaps one angle or more angles. 
You want to look at it from a historical point of view, from a sociological point of view, from a cultural point of view, from a religious, from an economic, from an ethical. Before I say something is, did I make it go through these filters or did I just accept it? And this applies to anything. And this applies also, it can become the, our, our way of approaching things. If I want things, am I looking at it with my eyes or my heart? and my mind. I want to get married. Am I looking with my eyes or my heart and my mind? This applies to everything. Al-Jahil, next hadith. Al-Jahil, man khada'a lihawahu wa ghururah. And so here again, there's, you start seeing the, the connections between the hadith and we're going to come back to these notions. Before we were simply told, for instance, the Imam said, Someone who's easily tricked, easily fooled. Now we have a little bit of a detail added to it. Now there's a specific kind of trickery happening, a specific kind of fooling happening. And this time, it's your own desires that are tricking you. The jahil is the person who is tricked by their own desires. You don't even need anything outside of you to trick you. Your own desires are tricking you. And you go along with it. That's jahil. Imam Ali says this is jahil. And وَغُرُورِهِ The غُرُور is perhaps easier to deal with. There's pride, there's arrogance. And so you fall prey to that. You refuse to learn. We talked about that. We said some of the biggest traits of jahl is that you don't have the humility, you don't have the modesty to learn. And even when advice comes your way, you reject it, you refuse it. So we'll see if we have time today to get to the hadith that start giving us a lot more details and some of the traits, the characteristics of the jahil. This is something that comes back again and again, this arrogance and pride. I refuse to let in something that is maybe critical of me. But then there is the desires. This is where you see the importance of self-discipline. The more discipline you have, the least, the less you're going to be prey to these desires. The desires are everything that is hardwired into us. They're meant to be used for very good reasons. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put these desires in us for very good reasons. If they are used properly, which means that they cannot run loosely on their own. You can't let any of the desires just do whatever it wants. I feel like eating now, so I eat because I have a desire to eat. No, Islam comes and says, no, I'm going to regulate that for you so that you're not going to become a slave to this desire. I'm going to make you and train you and make you realize that you are in control of this hunger. Not in an absolute way, but you're going to control it. I'm going to make you fast 30 days every year and you can fast a lot more to control this desire. So that you realize that you're the one who's supposed to be in control of these. These are tools we gave you so that you use them for something else. To become a better human being. 
Every desire you have in you is put there for a really good reason. And inshallah we'll, we'll talk when we talk about spiritual self-development, personality self-development, we'll talk about these as they've been talked about in Ilm al-Akhlaq, we'll talk about it from a self-development point of view. And we'll see that there's a reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts, for instance, aggression in us. Now, if you use it in the wrong way and it turns into anger and impatience, there's a problem. But it's there for a reason. Without that, you would never defend yourself. You wouldn't protect anything. You wouldn't stand up for anything. And so there is a reason that pushes you that desire is there for a very good reason. It makes you a much better human being if used appropriately. If it runs on its own, as soon as the desire kicks in, then you should be gratifying it, this instant gratification, as today society is headed entirely in that direction. If you feel like something, you do it. Because you feel like it. I feel like eating this, I eat it. Drinking that, smoking this, touching that, feeling this, it's all good. So long as I'm not harming someone else, everything is good. And this equates to freedom. Now you are completely free because you are providing the instant gratification to all of these desires. Islam says, now you are fully a slave, not fully free. Now you have become entirely a slave to these desires. You're not running the show. You're biological wiring is running the show. Your psychological wiring is running the show. Where are you in there? Where are your values? What do you stand for? If you're just an animal, that's fine. But if you think that you're more, as most of us hope and think we are, then that's not enough. So where are you in there? The next hadith, Al-Jahil yamilu ila shaklih. Al-Jahil is always going to like its likes. So the Jahil is going to lean towards people like him. He's going to lean towards ignorance and he is going to lean towards those who are ignorant. And we had a previous hadith about this. Something presented in a different way perhaps. It said something like the jahil is going to be someone who feels estranged or alienated by those things that bring peace and happiness to the hakim. If you remember, this is just another way of saying it. So if you are around the hakim and you feel estranged and alienated and unhappy and uneasy and uncomfortable, then there is some jahil there. And this is normal and it goes both ways. But the Hakim is not an issue. On the side of the Jahil, this can become a litmus test for all of us. I have to look at myself. I have to look at my life. I have to look at what are the things that make me at ease, make me feel at peace, comfortable, in a familiar environment, I'm at home in this type of environment. And this is where I have to be honest with myself. If I see someone and I completely disagree 
They might have hikmah or not, they might have religiousness or knowledge or aql or not, and I disagree, fine, let's put those people aside. Let's go after the person that we both, everyone agrees, you agree that this person represents knowledge. You both agree, or we all agree, that this person represents wisdom. This person represents aql, good judgment, good living, piety, whatever you're looking at. Your litmus test for yourself, all alone, within your heart, is to see at to which point, to what degree, are you comfortable in that environment? Are you easy or not in that type of environment? If you see that you're repulsed, there's something that does not sit well in that environment, when you know deep down that this is something good, or this is someone good, these are good people, or this is a good place, or this is a good person, and it still doesn't sit well with me, I still don't feel comfortable around it, then to the extent that I don't feel comfortable, this is jen. This has to become a litmus test for myself. And this has to be applied. What is missing? And if I see that it's very difficult, it means I have to work on myself. What am I doing? What's in my environment? What's in my makeup? What am I doing right now that makes me feel uneasy being there? How do I change it? I need to fix it. I know that this is true and right and good. And yet I feel uneasy. And the hadith are saying, if you are around hikmah, if you are around ilm, if you are around ma'rifah, you're supposed to feel good. And I agree that this is hikmah and truth and, 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 uh, and knowledge and aql. So if I know that this is the case, why am I feeling uneasy? I need to do something about it. I have to remove something. Maybe there's a barrier. Maybe there's some sort of ingredient that is causing this type of reaction. The next hadith, Al-Jahil, Lan yulqa abadan illa mufritan aw mufarrata. Al-Jahil, whenever you encounter a Jahil, you are only going to encounter them in one of two states. They are either exaggerating on one side or exaggerating on the other. Ifrad and tafrid. You are doing too much. This jahil is either doing too much or doing too little. They're never doing enough. If you look at the way they live, it's not appropriate. The amount of money, the amount of time, the amount of energy, the amount of focus. If you look at every aspect of their life, this jahil, easily you will say, there's too much being done here. It doesn't deserve that much attention, that much money, that much time, and the opposite. Too little. That person should spend a lot more time on this. They should spend some money there. They, put, they should put some energy there. If you see someone who has a limited revenue, but the entire revenue is spent on their car, there's an issue there. There are things that are perhaps more important than that specific car at this time. If someone who for no reason at all is really getting out of shape, they need to put in some energy and some time and even some money if necessary to get back in shape. You're going to cause yourself and those around you some problems later on 
if you can't walk or you can't work or you can't move there's an issue there you need to work on that it's always too little or too much this is a sign of jahl aql means you know how to balance so this applies to once again everything in life and it applies to our religion and when we began this series we've mentioned this a few times now one of the purposes of this series is that we have enough of a general understanding of our religion so that we learn how to balance between the different aspects of the religion itself that it doesn't become only rituals because religion is not just rituals and it doesn't just become you know feeling good in your heart and being good in your heart religion is more than that there is action that needs to be performed there is social work work out there in the world there's work in your family there's work in the community there's work on yourself there's work for this life a good Muslim is the one who knows how to balance between all of these next hadith once again as in relation to a previous hadith al-jahil abdu shahwatih so we talked I think enough about this the previous one al-jahil man khada'a lihawahu wa ghururah this one is more specific it's your shahwa it's your desire you are a slave to your desire when you are jahil and this applies to all of us to the extent that I am weak in front of my desire I have jahil to the extent that I am in control of my desire that my desire is under my control under my management then I have apple al-jahilu abdu shahwatih the next hadith I see it as a subset of this one it says al-jahilu asiru lisanih so now we have a specific type of desire we've talked a little bit about this in the past there's a lot that we can say we don't need to spend the time on it now al-jahil asiru lisanih al-jahil is a prisoner to their tongue al-jahil can't control their mouth al-jahil talks whatever pops in my mind comes out through my mouth no filter no thinking what are the repercussions? Is this somewhere that I should talk or not? How much should I say? What do I say? Is it worth it that I say it? Does every thought that crosses my mind, is it like a gem and a treasure that needs to be shared with the world? Is it of that value? And this is a huge concern in today's world. There's a one study after another and one book after another. Inshallah, well, I'm going to come back to this in a few weeks. I think it's important that we spend a little bit of time doing a deeper dive to understand today's society and today's generations. What has happened and what type of belief they have about themselves, about the world, how they view things like religion. Society has changed tremendously and very quickly. And these are signs of what many, I'm going to say most, it's becoming kind of the the norm today in sociology, people who study society, 
to consider the generations that are growing today in an environment that really pushes them to be the most narcissist society that has ever existed. A society of entitlement. One study and one book after another are focusing on this. And one of these repercussions is of course that I will say whatever I feel like saying. If I have a thought, the whole world should hear it. Who cares about the consequences? If the thought crossed my mind, it needs to be put out there and the world has to hear it. I would argue that someone who understands our religion, that's fine that this is going on out there, but we need to be aware of it. Again, the critical thinking. I would argue that in our religion, by default, the human being is not supposed to be talking. The default position in our religion is that you're silent. And you talk when there's a need to talk. When there's a good reason to talk, you open your mouth. And you say what you have to say. But that means that you constantly have to think, should I talk? Is this something worth saying? Or not? And there are criteria for this. We talked a little bit about it in the past. The opposite is what we have today. And the opposite is the jahl that our imams, our religion has always emphasized. Many people will end up in hell because of this tongue, because of what they say. And so this comes out as lying, this comes out as riba, rumors, saying things you don't have any knowledge about and yet you present them to the world as, you know, as though you're an expert in them and you know that you're in a position of authority, you're in a position where people are listening and they go and they change their lives because of what you said. It's okay. I feel like saying it, so I say it. Tomorrow I may change my mind, and I'll say that too. Islam does not want that. It has to be calculated. It has to be prepared. There has to be forethought that goes before I open my mouth and I start saying everything I feel like saying. There's a time to talk, and there are things that need to be said, and there are things that don't need to be said. And so Islam does not want too much blabbering. Too much empty talk. It means it needs to be meaningful. Talking has significance. Appreciate the value of talking and use it appropriately. So people who just say things and constantly regret what they say, they fall in this category. Al-jahl, al-jahl, asiru, lisana. They are a prisoner to their tongue. Don't be prisoners to your tongues. Next hadith. Another very problematic one. Imam Ali السلام, says, when this jahil, when this ignorant or foolish person acts, their actions are like a plague. It's like a disease. And the knowledge that they think they carry the knowledge that sometimes they think they're sharing is actually misguidance. It only leads to being lost. If you follow their guidance, you get lost. You get confused. You get misguided. You don't end up where you're trying to go. This is one way to look at this is to say this is with the best intentions. They have the best intentions in the world. And yet when they start acting 
when they take on some work, when they take on a project, when they decide to do something, if you look at it, if you're to assess it, Imam Ali السلام, in his words, he says, it's like a plague spreading. It's a wabal. It's a disease that's spreading. Why? They have a good intention. What's the issue? They're not competent. They don't have knowledge. Or they don't act with aql. You have good intentions, but you don't have aql. You want to do good. And so you see, for instance, there is a center. Say, I'll lead the center. Okay, but are you competent? Do you have the expertise? Can you do this in every aspect of life? You just jump in and you seize the opportunity. Is that enough? Even if you have the best of intentions, is that enough? This is why we mentioned previously the importance we said that our religion gives to expertise, to professional competence. Get yourself prepared. Go acquire the knowledge you need so that when you act, no matter what action it is, you want to write a book, you want to give a lecture, you want to take on a project, you want to start a business. Acquire the knowledge so that when you act, your action does not end up looking like it's an illness, like it's a plague. And of course, things have different levels. There are things that don't require a lot of preparation. They're simple and they're easy. And with your background in life, you can just jump in. It means you've had the preparation. And this is where your critical thinking has to come in. Is this something I just jump into and I can learn on the job, on the spot? Or is this something I need preparation for? I'm going to stop here. We can, you know, the. there's a lot we can say here. The... I think anyone who studies Islamic history, you'd say that this is a this is a condensed version of Islamic history. People who put themselves in positions that don't really belong to them, that they don't have the competence and the expertise to work in, to function in, and they take it over. And you look at all of Islamic history from beginning until today, and you see it's just a series of this people who appoint themselves or who are appointed by others to lead, to be experts in something when there are people more qualified than them or when they are not really prepared for this. And today we have the version of Islam that we have. And we constantly have to defend and say, but this is not Islam. This is Islam and how it was used for political reasons. This is a family dynasty that took over the political rule to and use Islam to justify what they were doing or use it as a tool to solidify their political rule. All of Islamic history is nothing but a series of this. And life continues this way, right? People who, until today, you see people who are competent and experts put aside for whatever reason and others take the mic, others take front stage, right? Center stage. This continues and it will always be the case. Your job is to have that critical filter, that critical thinking. Okay? Another one that I think is a rich hadith. The word dhala is the word used in the Arabic of that time to talk about animals that have run away, a 
priceless animal, let's say, or an animal who's worth a lot, a camel who's worth a lot of camels, and they've run away. And so the owner is going to do everything they can to find that camel. Okay, that's the origin of the term. Something that is lost, something that has run away, and you're willing to put in a lot of energy and a lot of effort and a lot of time and money to be able to capture, catch, catch up to, find that animal that has escaped. And so this is when you see, this is the image that has to come to mind every time you hear this word. And this word comes a lot in the narrations. Dalatul Mu'min, for instance. Dalatul Mu'min. Al-Hikmah, Dalatul Mu'min. Wisdom is that thing which the Mu'min, the believer, is always chasing after. Willing to sacrifice for, willing to run long and hard until he catches it. Because it's something that he feels he wants to get to. More than, or at least as much as, the owner of that camel. So here, ضَالَّةُ jahil. What is the ultimate objective of the jahil? The target and the purpose that they're running after. ضَالَّةُ jahil. Imam Ali السلام, says, ضَالَّةُ jahil غَيْرُ مَوْجُودَ It's not there. So, this could mean, once again, we apply the same lenses. It could mean that if you look in this world, it could mean that it's something that is just unattainable. You are trying to reach a certain goal, but you're not equipped to reach that goal. You don't have, you haven't done the work, you're relying on the empty hopes. It's not something that is attainable. And sometimes, and so of course this applies to everything, once again, I don't want to spend too much time, you can apply this. And sometimes this can be applied to at a higher level. What are you running after in this life? Is it something that is achievable or not? People who run after fame. The dalla is fame. The dalla is wealth. The dalla is, I don't know, luxuries of this world. Is it under control or is it in the absolute sense? A lot of people are running after it in the absolute sense. This is not attainable. No matter how much you have of it, it's never going to be enough. You don't have a specific objective that you can say, I've reached it. Imam says, the jahil is someone who is running after something that is not there. It's either something that does not even exist, it's a mirage, because when you look at things from the lens of the afterlife, there's nothing in this world that is really there. It's all going to disappear. So what will be left? That's the truth. Anything that has true existence is that which will stay after this world goes away. You will stay. Your actions will stay. The good and the bad that you did will stay. This world and everything in it and everyone in it will go. So that's one way to look at it. And the other way to look at it is, in this world, is it attainable? Is it something you can actually achieve? This can be even applied, it can even be applied to relationships. 
One of the issues that people have in a relationship is that one of the spouses has expectations that the other spouse considers unattainable, unachievable. This is not a sustainable relationship. Given enough time, something will be lost. Most likely the relationship will not work. It, it creates a type of pressure on the other spouse who knows that this is something unattainable. If my spouse thinks that the objective is to make 50 million a year and no matter how much I work, I can only make a fraction of that and I feel the pressure mounting that this is unattainable and unachievable, this applies to every aspect of life. I'm just mentioning one that comes to mind. This is going to erode, eat away at the relationship. The moment you are chasing after something that is not achievable, if you believe that is unachievable, it might really be, it doesn't matter what it is out there. In your mind, is it achievable or not? When you sit and think about it and do your calculations and do your reflections, is it achievable, attainable or not? Okay? The next hadith, the wealth of the jahil, I think the majority of the people, if you were to ask them, do you have any wealth and what does it look like? So let's say you, you ask someone who's well off, do you have any wealth? Where is it? What does it look like? They'll tell you these are the properties I own, I have these cars, these houses, these lands, stocks, whatever, I have this much money in the bank. This is my wealth. I think the majority of us think in this term. Imam Ali السلام, says, a jahil, their tharwa, their wealth, if you ask them where is your wealth, they are going to say, the wealth of the jahil is in their possessions. In Arabic, often we say mal means money. No, mal, to be accurate, mal means possessions, things you own. The wealth of the jahil is in their possessions and in their aspirations and their dreams. We talked about it earlier said not action, dreams. So what's the alternative? If your wealth is not actually in your wealth, in your possessions and in your money, then where is it? If you're not a jahil, if you're a alim and a aqil, where is your wealth? It has to be in your actions. It has to be in your knowledge. It has to be in your aql, in the good that you do, in the good that you leave behind, the acts of charity, your relationships. Imam saying, this is the true wealth. Not how much you own. How much you own can come and go. And how much you own does not represent ilm or aql. It represents how much you own. That's it. It has no bearing on who you are and what you represent and what your value is. Imam says, This one we can do very quickly. No matter what state you look at the jahil, you see that they are losing. 
They're, they are in a state of losing. That's the true definition of being a loser. Right? The Holy Prophet says, And ultimately, that's the definition. When you are in a state of disobeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you are a jahil. Why? Because you're missing the whole point of your existence. And we've talked about this. We've given multiple examples of this. It's like you go somewhere to do something specific. You know, we, we've talked about the case of someone, for instance, who goes to... They, they, they suffer from something, they go to the clinic to see the doctor, but instead of seeing the doctor, they spend time there looking at people, looking at the magazines, maybe doing something mischievous and while work, waiting in the waiting room, and then they leave. Or someone who goes to, the, to a mall, for instance, to buy something, and you go in the mall and you just, it's beautiful and there's so much merchandise and the lights and everything is good, and that's it, you just keep walking around in there forever. This is like people who come into this world and they miss the point. The point was you go get what you need and you get out. Maybe you're doing something in the house and you, and you need a, a piece of furniture or you need to go to Home Depot to buy something, to build something or fix something. And you get so distracted, you completely miss the point. So anyone who would look at that would say, you're a fool. But this is how we live our lives. We come in this world, there's a purpose. The purpose is outside of this world. The purpose is outside of, of the mall. The purpose is outside of the doctor's office. But that's all we focus on and that's it. We think we've, we've got it. I have X amount of dollars. I have a property. I have a car. Good, now I have a job, a better job. More cars, more money, more properties. Okay, good. But that wasn't the point. You didn't come here for any of this. So this is why when the Holy Prophet says, we can take it very superficially, but it's not something we just preach. We have to understand what it means. The Holy Prophet says, The person who is in a state of disobedience, they're in a state of jahil right now. You're completely missing the point. He continues, وَإِنْ كَانَ جَمِيلَ المنبر. Even though they may look very good. And more than that, وَعَظِيمَ الْخَطَرِ Khatar is importance or power. Even if they have great power. Even, even if they look really good. Are they in a state of disobeying Allah? Yes, they've completely missed the point. They are ignorant. That's it. That's the bottom line. The Holy Quran says it the same way. You go to Surah Al-Munafiqun, when it talks about the hypocrites, the whole, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Holy Prophet in the Quran that if you look at them, you are very impressed with how they look. And if they talk, you would listen to everything they have to say. They look amazingly good. And it could be the person, it could be their lifestyle, it could be whatever. They know how to present. They know how to talk. They have media. Or they themselves know how to get their message across. 
And then later, كَأَنَّهُمْ خُشُبٌ مُسَمْنَدَ هُمُ الْعَدُوُ فَحْذَرْهُمْ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Holy Prophet, these are the enemy. Those exact people are the enemy. So beware. Of course, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the Holy Prophet, but He's telling us. The Holy Prophet knows. Okay? So this is the reason why this is the case is this is where the trickery happens. And we began and we ended. Last time we ended and we repeated the hadith. Al-Jahil man al-Matalib. The one who is fooled. The one who is tricked. Are we getting tricked? And by what? By whom? Where? And the next hadith. This is a hadith that I promised you last time and I wanted to get to it at least before I stop because I promised it in the last discussion. From Imam al-Askari we can stop after this. Imam al-Askari says, رِيَاضَةُ الْجَاهِلُ وَرَدُّ الْمُعْتَادِ عَنْ عَادَتِهِ كَالْمُعْجِزِ رِيَاضَةُ الْجَاهِلُ To train Someone who is ignorant or someone who is a fool. That's the first thing Imam al-Askar is saying. So this is one thing to keep in mind. Training someone who is ignorant, someone who is a fool, one. What's the second thing? And being able to extract someone or push someone away from their habit. What about these two things? Training the fool and pushing someone away from their habit. He says, Kel mu'jiz. It is like a miracle. It's not a miracle. There's obviously an exaggeration here. It's a hyperbole. The Imam says, Kel mu'jiz. It is like a miracle. In today's way of talking, we would say it would take a miracle to be able to train someone who fits the description of the fool, of the ignorant person. Why? Because we said they're too arrogant, they're too proud, and they're not interested in learning. Right? They don't have the humility, they don't have the openness to learn. You want to train them, but you're not going to be able to. It would take a miracle for you to train them. I think the even more dangerous one, inshallah that one is not a problem for us. The other one I think is a huge problem. When the Imam says To be able to move someone who has a habit away from that habit. Maybe today we would say it's someone who's addicted to something. There's a recognition here. Addiction is supposed to be a very recent notion. Right? Psychologically to be defined in this way and recognized in this way. I would say Imam al-Askar is talking about addiction very directly and explicitly here. I think it's very well recognized how difficult it is that if there is a true addiction, how difficult it is to break it. Is it impossible? No. It's not impossible. But it's like moving a mountain. And that's why the Imam says it's like a miracle. It's like you've accomplished a miracle if you can do this. So again, if you find yourself in this situation, does it mean it's impossible? No. But you have to recognize that there's a lot of work ahead of you. So get working. That's one. 
two, I would argue even more important than this. More important is that we have to do everything we can not to fall into this situation in the first place. Because the Imam is telling us, once you're there, it's going to be really difficult to get out. You have to do everything you can so that you don't fall in a situation where the habit is now becoming an addiction. This has to be applied to ourselves, this has to be applied to how we raise our children. If you know that there is something that has the potential of becoming an addiction, why are you exposing yourself to it? What are you doing so that this does not become a habit? An addiction is just way down the road of the habit. A habit that has become part of you. You have a chemical and a hormonal reaction if you don't get it. And if you do, you always need more. You're going to fall in a spiral. It's never enough. The body needs more. You'll lecture us on the dopamine effects of addiction later on. It's a huge problem, so the Imam says right away. So this has to be a red, huge red flag for our practical lives. The Imam says to be able to dislodge someone from that habit. You can't take it lightly. If you're serious about a bad habit you have, hurry and get rid of it. And it's, the Imam is telling you, it's going to be hard work. But that's why when you, go, when you go to other narrations and in the Holy Quran, you see the type of reward you get for being able to break a bad habit. Allah knows what you're going through. It's not taken lightly. Someone who's you know, done something once and they don't repeat it again, the struggle they're going through is completely different from someone who has done something 10,000 times and now it's becoming part of who they are and it's an addiction. There's a recognition in our religion that these are two very, very different struggles. The struggle of someone, and that's why in some of our narrations, they say there are different types of patience. There's a patient when you see something you want to do, but you're not doing. You haven't done it yet. So the, the patience that it requires to abstain from something. There's another one that when you're in it and you have to extract yourself out of it, and the struggle is different, but the reward goes with it. The reward in the case of someone who can break away from that bad habit is enormous. Allah subhanahu wa considers this the struggle in the way of God. So what you're doing is recognized as being huge and the reward of it is it should go without saying that inshallah you see how it will improve your life always the two lenses in this world but there's also the extra motivation of knowing that there's a recognition of this in your religion and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is rewarding you amply and generously for this and usually this means that he will be there helping you if you want to go that path I think I'll stop here. Inshallah, we'll continue the next time so that we leave enough time for a little bit of a discussion. So as we said, I'll try to go quickly over the event of Ghadir. The month of the Hijjah is a month that is full of Islamic occasions and events. 
There's no shortage in the month of the Hijjah. One of the most important ones, not only in the month of the Hijjah, certainly in the month of the Hijjah, but beyond, in the entirety of the Islamic calendar, in fact, in the entirety of Islamic history, is the event of Ghadir. Referred to in some of the narrations of Ahlul Bayt as Eidullah al Akbar, God's greatest Eid. The event of Ghadir or Ghadir Khum would require extensive studies and extensive discussions and we have a few minutes. So I thought I'd focus on one dimension of it. The first thing that we should logically do is to establish the authenticity or the certainty that this event actually happened. I think that there is no point doing that, given that there are no Islamic scholars, no Islamic historians, no Islamic schools of thought who have ever, or I hope who will ever, question the fact that the event of Ghadir Khum took place. That part, I would say, is a completely done deal. There is an event that took place at Ghadir Khum where the Holy Prophet gathered the believers. We'll go through the event in a minute. After Hajjat al-Wada' and he gave a lengthy sermon and so on and so forth. All of that is entirely accepted unanimously in Islam. So what's the issue? What is not unanimously accepted is the significance. What was actually said? Or, to put it more bluntly, what was the point? What was the purpose? Not the actual words that were said, because that's the issue. It's how do we interpret the words that were said. So I thought I would try to do something a little bit differently instead of going through the typical kalam theological discussions and points usually mentioned and raised around the event of Ghadir, I thought I would present it. If someone would go through all the books of history and you just take out all of the details as though if you wanted, let's say now, to recreate the event. If you wanted to bring people to act out the event. I'm trying to draw a paint a canvas to you. What does it look like if we don't add a layer of theological interpretation of what's happening? You're just, you know, anonymously sitting there watching from afar this unfold. What is your interpretation of what is happening? So I thought I would just try to do that. Quickly go through the, the main events, how they transpired and leave the interpretation to you. I'll probably ask some rhetorical questions along the way. I won't be able to probably control myself, but we'll see. Okay, so we'll begin from the beginning. What's the significance of Ghadir Khum? One way to look at it is maybe to split it into three big parts. The before the event, the event itself and right after the event. The Holy Prophet a few weeks before the 
season of pilgrimage, year 10 after Hijrah, the Holy Prophet passes away about two months later. Okay? Right before the pilgrimage season, the news spreads that the Holy Prophet is going to perform the Hajj himself this year. This is why in the lifetime of the Holy Prophet, it was referred to as Hajjatil Wada'ah, the farewell pilgrimage. There are opinions that say that the Holy Prophet actually never performed any other Hajj except that one. And some say that he performed other ones, but that was the one that he announced that, to which he was attending and so on and so forth. In any case, huge opportunity in the Islamic world to actually see the Holy Prophet perform the pilgrimage. And until today, this is how the pilgrimage was documented. It was in Hajjat al-Wada'ah. What did the Holy Prophet do where? How? When? And we try to copy what he did. Day 7, day 8, day 9, day 10. Where, where, did, where did he go? What did he say? So on and so forth. One thing that is not always mentioned is that there are rumors that had started circulating. The Holy Prophet was hinting that he was going to depart from this world soon. And the Holy Prophet, when he said, I'm going to perform the Hajj, Therefore, anyone who is able-bodied and capable to perform the Hajj, they should attend and perform the Hajj. So, you see the factors leading to more people gathering. So, finally, the month of the Hijjah comes, and the Holy Prophet is performing the rituals of Hajj in the 10th year of Hijrah. Right after the end of the rituals of Hajj, a verse is revealed. But not everybody who is performing the Hajj knows that this ver verse is revealed. This is verse 567. O Messenger, communicate that which has been revealed to you from your Lord. And if you do not, then you have not communicated the message. What's the message? All of Islam. You either communicate this message we've just given you, or it is as though you have not communicated anything from this entire religion. And God will protect you from the people. There is certainly something going on in the mind and in the heart of the Holy Prophet where Allah needs to support him and console him and tell him, don't worry, I will support you, I will protect you. Your job is to deliver the message like I asked you to. Okay. A few days after the very end of the rituals of Hajj, the Holy Prophet asks Bilal, we all know Bilal, being kind of the, the role of the official announcer of the Holy Prophet, he asks Bilal to start walking through the tents of the people and announcing that the Holy Prophet wants everyone who is getting ready to now leave Mecca, the pilgrimage is done, he wants everyone to gather in a spot called Ghadir Khum. What is Ghadir Khum? Ghadir simply means in Arabic, it simply means a spring of water. That's Ghadir. So there is a spring of water called Khum. The Holy Prophet wants people to gather at Ghadir Khum. Ghadir Khum is near a location called Al-Juhfa between Mecca and Medina. 
Today, a lot of people say this was on the way where the caravans would start departing from there to go to Yemen or Iraq or Sham or wherever they came from. Regardless, the Holy Prophet said he wants everyone there to gather at Radir Khum. So you have, this is on the 15th of the Hajjah, two days, three days after the Eid, right? We just went through the Eid, two days later, we have this announcement from the Holy Prophet, everyone is to gather at Radir Khum. About 120,000 pilgrims who were in attendance move, gathered in caravans, they move together to Radir Qum. Some are going faster, some are going slower, and so those who are going faster, some of them went too far ahead. Everybody is near that location. The Holy Prophet sent people to get them back, to tell them, no, this is a location, you went too far. And they waited. The Holy Prophet's caravan reached there on the 18th of the Hijjah, three days later, the morning of the 18th of the Hijjah. As soon as the Holy Prophet gets there, he gives the, he asks Al-Muqdad and Salman and Abu Dhar and Ammar to start preparing a specific spot. And so you go in the books of history and you see that they started brooming the place. They removed the big rocks and pebbles they, they cut out some brushes, uh, some bushes and needles uh, and thorns were removed. Some tree branches were cut off. And they put really big pieces of fabric between trees that were there to start forming a bit of a shade. And they sprinkled water there so that the dust settles. And then they put a foundation of rocks and on which they brought the leathers and the litters from the camels and some of their luggage and they covered everything with some pieces of clothing until it looked like a pulpit that the Holy Prophet can climb on and it had steps and they say it had steps and it was the size of a full-grown man so when the Holy Prophet was on the top of it he was a full size a man's height a full size standing on top of everyone so that everyone can see him and can hear him and this is what is being done at that time in the morning the dhuhr prayer occurs the holy prophet performs the dhuhr prayer and then he takes to the pulpit when he goes to stand on the pulpit he asks imam ali alayhi salam to come stand beside him so the way it is described is that Imam Ali stood in a way that the Holy Prophet's hand was on the shoulder of Imam Ali salam, so you could see that he is lower than him but standing beside him. The sermon itself, we don't have time to go through it. Inshallah, maybe one day we can actually go through the entirety of the sermon of Ghadir. It's a longish sermon. When, when you read it at normal speed in Arabic, it's probably around 30 minutes. So if you can imagine someone delivering it as a sermon, it's probably around an hour. Maybe more, maybe less. This is the part that is documented. So it's, let's say, at least an hour-long sermon, quite a long sermon for the Holy Prophet to deliver. And for many reasons, all Muslims consider this one of the greatest sermons that the Holy Prophet delivered. First of all, it's the last one. 
The Holy Prophet did not deliver any sermons after this one. He spoke to people, but not in a public speaking sermon way. And certainly not talking to 120,000 people all at once. In fact, this could be considered most likely a very historic event where you have a prophet of God having this type of gathering of human beings who are his followers and he's directly addressing them. There's something very special about this. But in any case, so the Holy Prophet delivers this sermon. As I said, we don't have time to go through it. So I just thought I'd highlight some big bullets from it very quickly. And inshallah, one day we can go actually and read it. Just a translation of it, Arabic and English. The content of the sermon. The Holy Prophet began by praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, thanking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, recognizing his own submission to Allah. And then he tells them that some verses of the Quran have been revealed to him. And he recites them. The verses that we said. 567. O Messenger, communicate that which has been revealed to you from your Lord. And if you do not, then it is as though you have not delivered or communicated the message. And God will protect you from the people. The Holy Prophet tells the people that his death is coming close, that he will soon depart from this world, and that he will not stand like this again to give a sermon. He says all of that in the sermon. Then he reminds people of the merits of Imam Ali He tells them, this is the first man who believed in me. This is the person who started worshiping with me. This is the one who sacrificed himself for me when he laid in bed for me. The one who only acts for the sake of Allah. The one who has inherited all of the knowledge that I have. And he is the best of all creatures, male and female, after me. All of these points, they're introductions. The Holy Prophet wants to introduce people, warm them up to something. Okay? So this is a reminder. And then the Holy Prophet says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has appointed successors. And these successors are going to be heirs to the Holy Prophet and all of these successors will be descendants of the Holy Prophet himself. And then he adds, and they will also be descendants of Ali. Then the Holy Prophet talks about what we refer to as Hadith al Thaqalain. He says, Hadith al Thaqalain, I am leaving two weighty things with you. One of them is greater than the other, the Holy Quran, and the members of my household. And they never depart from each other, which means that they must both be infallible. If you believe the Quran is infallible, then you must believe that these people are infallible. In any case, and then the Holy Prophet talks about something to which he's going to come back again and again. And I'll mention it a couple of times. I'm following the order of the sermon. He talks about al-munafiqeen. And this was a huge thing happening. Clearly the Holy Prophet was talking about something very specific. He describes the munafiqi to the point where he says, and if I wanted to, I would name them to you, all of them, but I will not, the Holy Prophet says. And then he says, he comes back to Imam Ali salam, and he says, because he's giving his general traits, he's saying this is a person who is the best among you, the most pious, who has sacrificed the most for this religion, who has inherited all of my knowledge, therefore obey him in everything that he tells you. Otherwise, if you reject, and you go, if you reject, you are going back to jahiliyyah, and you will end up in hell. Then he asks Imam Ali to come closer to him, 
the Imam is already stuck to the Holy Prophet. He tells Imam Ali Ali, come closer. Imam Ali comes closer to the Holy Prophet. The Holy Prophet grabs Imam Ali by the forearm. And he raises him in all of the narrations. They say he raised Imam Ali until the feet of Imam Ali were with the knees of the Holy Prophet. Now we could imagine this as the Imam now standing higher. I see it as when you read the the, the, the reports, it really sounds like the Holy Prophet lifted Imam Ali off the ground. There's a point being made here. The Holy Prophet wants to make sure that there is something being really well understood by everyone. That there is no excuse for not understanding what I am saying. Right? He raises Imam Ali and he says, while in the Ruayat they say, that you could see the white near their armpits, both of their hands. And Imam Ali's feet are near the knees of the Holy Prophet. He says, to whomever, I am their guardian, I am their wali, this Ali is their wali. Men kuntu mawla, whoever accepts me as their guardian, this man that I'm carrying right now, this is their guardian. Men kuntu mawla, fa'aliyun mawla. And he continues, this is the famous part. Okay, and it goes on. Allahumma wali man walahu adi man So become a wali, a guardian over anyone who accepts this and reject those who reject it, and so on and so forth. He adds the completion of religion is through his imamah. And we'll see that the Holy Quran will support that. He starts listing the merits of Imam Ali alayhi salam. He repeats, do not reject it, especially out of jealousy. The Holy Prophet mentions, he reminds people that there are a lot of hypocrites amongst them. And he says, and he starts talking very explicitly about the Imams, and he talks at length a couple of times about the one who will appear at the end of times by the name of Al-Mahdi, in Khutbat Al-Ghadir. And that's why we say all Muslims are unanimous about Al-Mahdi, right? And then he warns against people turning upside down if ever he were to be killed or that he would die. He's telling people continue on this path and do not change course simply because I have died or left this world. And then he says, my leadership is going to be turned into kingdoms for people to fight over after me. May God's curse be upon them who do this. And there, there will be people after me who will be imams who call to hellfire. So avoid them. And then he comes back to the hypocrites. And he mentions something I don't have, I don't think we have time to talk about now. He simply mentions there are munafiqeen and he gives some descriptions of them and he says those who have prepared the document. That's all he says. Inshallah we'll come back to that. There is a document being prepared. We'll talk about that at the end if I have time. And then he says, the Holy Prophet asks the people there, he says, anyone who is present here, I want you to inform all those who are absent. So this is a command from the Holy Prophet. He tells them, I want everyone who is here, present, to inform those who are not here of everything that is occurring and everything that I'm saying. And then he adds, and I want every parent to teach this and inform this to their child. And then he adds, until the day of judgment and until the Mahdi reappears, I want you to do this, to repeat this and teach this to those who are not here, to spread this so that my message reaches everyone. And then he says, at the end of my sermon, 
I ask you to shake my hand on paying allegiance to Ali and to shake his hand on this for I swear that I have given allegiance to God on this and Ali has given allegiance to me on this and then he goes on in this section of the khutbah where he talks about the big teachings in Islam he talks about Hajj he talks about Zakah he talks about prayer he talks about Amr bil Ma'roof Nahi Anil Munkar remembrance of death and the afterlife as soon as the Holy Prophet finishes with the sermon the people rush again please just remember the dramatization here there's a play being played out acted out in front of you the people rush to the Holy Prophet and to Imam Ali alayhi salam to give their allegiance and to congratulate the Holy Prophet and Imam Ali alayhi salam for what just happened so first question I would just park for you in your mind is why did they do that? What did they understand from what the Holy Prophet said that they rushed to the Holy Prophet and Imam Ali to give allegiance to him? Then the Holy Prophet asks that two tents be set up. One of them for him, one of them for Ali And he asks the people to come pay allegiance to him and then to Ali. And so they would come and they would give allegiance to him in his tent and they would walk out and go to the tent of Imam Ali and pay allegiance to Imam Ali They would say to Imam Ali these specific words. Books of history are unanimous on this. Congratulations Ali, you are the prince of believers because the Holy Prophet in the sermon, he said, no one after or before him shall be called the prince of believers. Imratil mu'mineen. Hada Amirul Mu'mineen, he says. This is the Prince of Believers. Don't give this title to others as it happened in the history of Islam. Every new ruler became Amirul Mu'mineen. In any case, so they came and they told Imam Ali, Congratulations, you have become the Prince of the Believers. Those are their own words. You have become the Prince of the Believers. So, in other words, you have become my Prince. What else? And you have become my Wali and the Wali of every man and woman who is a believer. Asbahta waliyi wa wali kul mu'min wa mu'mina. Okay. The men would come to Imam Ali, they would say these words, and they would give their hand to shake Imam Ali. What about the woman? The Holy Prophet made a point to say that a basin of water, a container of water would be brought in the tent for the woman to come and pay allegiance to Imam Ali. How? Imam Ali would stand on one side of the basin of water and the woman would stand on the other and a veil was put on top so that their hands don't show as they go in the water and both sides put their hand in the water to symbolically show that an allegiance is being paid and he asked that the first to do this were the wives of the Holy Prophet and of course this is traditional and typical of the Holy Prophet that he begins with himself and with his household and everything he does and perhaps there is more going on that will lead to deeper discussions but the Holy Prophet did this so that all the women who were present in pilgrimage pay their respect and give their allegiance to Imam Ali in this way starting with the wives of the Holy Prophet who are with him in Hajjat al-Wada this lasted for three days for three days those two tents were up so that all of these people, or as many of those people, can actually come and give their allegiance directly to Imam Ali for three days. And 
During that time, we are told that the Holy Prophet sent some of his companions to walk among the people during those three days and to repeat specific parts of the sermon as a reminder and to kind of create the mood that this is what's going on here. So they would say, Man kuntu mawlah, This was one of the parts that were repeated as the companions of the Prophet would walk around and saying those things that the Holy Prophet asked. The Holy Prophet at this time, we are told, he had a turban that was very famous. The Holy Prophet had a turban by the, it had a name. That's how famous that turban was. A Sahab or a Sahab. That turban, the Holy Prophet after the khutbah and after this was done, the Holy Prophet gifted this sermon, this turban to Imam Ali السلام, But he didn't just give it to him. He stood publicly in front of everyone and he placed the turban on the head of Imam Ali السلام, and he did what is called tahnik. So he took out the edge of the, the fabric that is used to, to, to spin the turban and you put it under the jaw and on the other side. So you bring it from one side to the other to put it on the shoulder. That's tahnik. So he placed the turban himself. He basically arranged the turban on the head of Imam Ali. This was not new. The Holy Prophet had done this in a lot of occasions before, especially when the Imam would be about to go on some big mission. And Khaybar, for instance, and others, if you read the reports, the Holy Prophet would come and put the turban of Imam Ali himself on the head of the Imam. But in this case, he gave him his own turban. And by the standards of the Arabs, this is not just a man giving his turban to another man. You can put all the words that could be said to describe this on one side, but the actions always speak louder. Especially the eloquent Arabs of that time who live by symbols. This is a symbol. The man who has the authority, and that which represents the authority of the Arab the most, is his turban. The man with the most authority is giving that authority to this man. He is giving him the turban. And he is placing it and positioning it himself on his head. So, I, the man with the authority, I'm passing on this authority to you. That's the symbol behind this act that everybody understands. This is not something we're adding into the, the, the interpretation. After this, the famous poet of the Holy Prophet, Hassan ibn Thabit, comes to the Holy Prophet and he says, Would you allow me to recite some verses of poetry to commemorate everything that is happening here. And the Holy Prophet says yes. And so Hassan ibn Thabit recites his very famous verses of poetry that many people know by heart now. Yunadihim yawm al-ghadiri nabiyyuhum until the end. And he talks about the entire event. And he talks about how Imam Ali basically became the guardian and the prince of all of the believers. And anyone who reads the Diwan, the completed works and collection of poetry of Hassan ibn Thabit, this is one, he has many of them. But the Holy Prophet said something, there's a caveat about Hassan. Maybe one day we'll talk about the personality of Hassan ibn Thabit. He, the Holy Prophet gave a condition. When he was done, the Holy Prophet was so impressed with that poetry. He told him, Hassan, so long as you continue to support us with your tongue, the Holy Spirit shall be in your support. It's all, almost like he's telling him there's a divine blessing to the words that you're saying. And perhaps today, if any of us are reciting 14 centuries later these words that were uttered in the desert, 
that far away and that long away, there's probably some of that there. And I think this is the greatest prize and, and accomplishment that a poet could ever hope for. But there's an if. There's so long as. So we need to study the life of Hassan and see what is that. But in any case. So these were verses that eternalized, commemorated that event. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed verse 5-3. Surah Al-Ma'idah, verse 3. اليوم يَئِسَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِن دِينِكُمْ فَلَا تَخْشَوْهُمْ وَخْشَوْهُمْ Those who disbelieve. Today, on this day, they have become or they have despaired from your religion. So do not fear them and fear me. فَلَا تَخْشَوْهُمْ وَخْشَوْهُمْ اليوم أكملت لكم دينكم Today I have completed your religion for you وأتممت عليكم نعمتي And I have perfected my favor or my blessings upon you ورضيت لكم الإسلام دينا And I have approved Islam as a religion for you When you see all of these events put together in this way this is all happening in the matter of a few days, three or four days, right? From the beginning to the end, from the revelation to the revelation. The Holy Prophet has to reveal something that is equal to all of Islam, and if he does not, it's as though all of Islam was not revealed. And then when it's revealed, the message is performed, the mission is done, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Holy Prophet, now I have perfected the blessing. And now I have completed the religion. So on one side, O Messenger of Allah, you have accomplished the task. The religion is now full and complete and perfected. And my blessing upon you, O Muslims, is now full. There's no greater blessing that you can get. The blessings have been perfected. Now I will accept Islam from you as a religion. When you put all of this together, how do you interpret and how do you analyze and how do you understand this event? Could it be said that the Holy Prophet is just telling people, this Ali is a really good guy, I like him so, and I'm his friend and you should all be his friends? As sometimes they say, the word wali, that's what it means. It's just friendship. It's someone I really like. You shouldn't talk bad about him. You shouldn't insult him. You shouldn't, you know, speak ill of him as some say that's what was happening so that's the kind of lay of the land very quickly on what transpired in one minute and then we can try to conclude I mentioned and I, I saw some faces light up when I talked about this or uh, out of curiosity when I said that the Holy Prophet said there's a document What's the story of the document? The hypocrites had got, come together and they had created an alliance. There was a pact between people from Quraysh who were getting ready and the document stated that if, the, if, this, if anything is to happen to Muhammad if he is ever killed or if he ever dies we will not allow anyone in his household anyone from Bani Hashim to take over the rule. The rule will not reach anyone from the household of this man. Quraysh has to come back to power. 
We've waited long enough. We've been patient long enough with him. He claimed to be a prophet. Fine, he's a prophet. He's a messenger. He became the king. He became the ruler. If he dies, we're not going to allow this to continue with anyone else from his household. We're putting an end to this now. This is our pact. We're all in a and an alliance on this, we all agree to this, one way or another, we will prevent this from happening. That's the document. This was done towards the end of the life of the Holy Prophet. The movement, the activity of the hypocrites was becoming a lot stronger. And the Holy Prophet is openly saying, I'm soon going to depart from this world. So they're getting ready. And then on the way back, we said they were between Mecca and Medina, the Holy Prophet and his caravan. He goes on the way back to Medina. There was an assassination attempt on the life of the Holy Prophet from some of the hypocrites. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed it to the Holy Prophet and it didn't work. So when they went back to Medina, they started working with other tribes to expand the alliance. And the end result of it was what you saw at Saqifah. As soon as the Holy Prophet dies, the events that ensued. So we leave that chapter for another day, but this is just so that you connect to the dots and you understand the beginnings of that document. And there are many mentions and many references to it. People knew, people in the know knew about the document. And it was mentioned by Ibn Abbas and by others. People who know what's going on, they knew that there's an alliance that has been signed. There's a pact and a pledge that has been signed. Okay? So I'll stop here. I wanted to maybe share one last thing with you if you give me two minutes related to Al-Ghadir. This is a passage to me that I reread uh, Al-Khutbah today, the sermon of Ghadir today, just to refresh my mind. I took out this part that I thought I'd read with you. This part to me is very symbolic for people especially who believe in what we believe in, who follow the Holy Prophet. The Holy Prophet in this part, he is telling the people there, he tells them there are too many of you for each single one of you to pay allegiance to me and to Ali. So I'm going to ask you to pay your allegiance first to me by saying the following. So I thought I'd share it with you to see what the Holy Prophet is asking. Imagine yourself standing there, having just performed the pilgrimage with the Holy Prophet. The Holy Prophet is now saying, this is the last time you will see me giving a sermon. And now he says, he says, The Holy Prophet tells the gathering of 120,000. He tells them, say all of you together the following. So he says, he's asking them to repeat these words. He says, I'll translate. We hear. We obey, we accept, we follow all that you have communicated to us from our Lord and your Lord in the affair of our leader, Ali, the prince of the believers and the leaders from his descendants. Nubayi'uka, so you're talking to the Holy Prophet. Nubayi'uka ala thalika biqulubina wa anfusina wa alsinatina wa aidina. We give our allegiance to you on this matter with our hearts, with our souls, with our tongues and with our hands. Ala dhalika nahya wa alayhi namut wa alayhi nubath. This is the belief that we hold during our lifetimes and at the time of our death and when we are raised back from death. 
ولا نغير ولا نبدل ولا نشك ولا نجحد ولا نرتاب We do not alter or change anything We do not doubt nor reject nor hesitate in it ولا نرجع عن العهد ولا ننقض الميثاق We do not go back or betray on our covenant and we do not break our pledge وعظتنا بوعظ الله في علي أمير المؤمنين والأئمة الذين ذكرت من ذريتك ومن ولده بعده الحسن والحسين ومن نصبه الله بعدهما You have proclaimed to us God's teachings in Ali, the Prince of the Believers and the leaders you have mentioned from your progeny and his الحسن الحسين and those God appoints after them فالعهد والميثاق لهم مأخوذ منا من قلوبنا وأنفسنا وألسنتنا وضمائرنا وأيدينا من أدركها بيده وإلا فقد أقر بلسانه So our covenant and our pledge is given to them from our hearts, our souls, our tongues, our conscience and our hands for whomever can extend his hand to it otherwise by declaring it with their tongue. ولا نبتغي بذلك بدلا ولا يرى الله من أنفسنا حولا We shall never seek to replace it with another and God shall never see any change from us نحن نؤدي ذلك عنك الداني والقاصي من أولادنا وأهالينا and we shall communicate this on your behalf to the ones who are near and the ones who are far away and to our children and to our families ونشهد الله بذلك وكفى بالله شهيدا وأمت علينا به شهيد and we bear witness on this and God suffices as a witness and you are a witness over us in all of this I leave you with this inshallah the portrait or the canvas is clear inshallah the words that you uttered with me or you thought about with me do not stay at the level of words. This needs to translate into how we live, into our lifestyle, into our worldview. And inshallah, we are worthy of carrying this in our hearts and that we can pass it on to the next generations as the Holy Prophet asked us to our own children and to communicate it one way or another to the rest of the world. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين